let's play a little game this morning. Uh, here's a little game. Uh, the game is called, How Many This Is The End Of The World Events Have You Lived Through? <laughs> Which is kind of funny until you really start to break it down. And I, I started doing a little research to say, okay, well, how many have I lived through? I was born, I know this will be shocking because I don't look this old, but I was born in 1974. So there's been quite a few. I know, woo, amazing, all this gray hair. So, so let's, let's start working our way back because we really, we, we have to start right with 2020 COVID-19. How many of us heard the end of the world? And we also hear a little bit of this is God's judgment on the world at the same time. We need to stop that mess too. But COVID-19, we've all lived through, still living through that one. Um, so there's that one. Um, uh, yeah, so we could go back a little bit further. We probably had a little bit of a break, but then in, uh, does anybody remember this? 2012. Oh, Mayan, look at you, you even know the great cycle of the Mayan calendar came to an end and there was even a terrible, horrible movie made uh, starring John Cusack. So I don't know if you wasted your time and money on that one. Um, 2011 was another year. Were you aware of that? That there was this guy by the name of Harold Camping and he predicted the end of the world. He first said May, didn't happen. Then he said October and he finally admitted, genius after you missed it twice, nobody could know exactly when the time of the apocalypse would come. I mean, if only somebody had said that like Jesus 2,000 years ago. Way to go, Harold. Um, you could go back a little bit further. So that's 2011. You could jump back to 2008. Anybody remember this? This is, anybody know what this is? Yes, the collider, the Large Hadron Collider. And they were going to turn this thing on. And oh my word, it's going to create a black hole here in the middle of the earth. And we're all going to get sucked into it. I mean, there's like fear and panic over this, which is crazy. Tim, you mentioned the next one. Y2K, who was here? Who? Now here's the big question. In, I was teaching at a Christian school at the time, a, a atmosphere just ripe for the Y2K conspiracy theory that the world was gonna end. I remember hearing students talk about stockpiling food. They were like getting food in basements, uh, canned goods, stockpiling water, because the water grid was gonna go down the power. Okay, any of you stockpilers out there? Good for not admitting it. Why? What's that? Your parents, not you. But you remember, I mean, there was a lot of fear going into Y2K. And then, I mean, midnight happened and nothing happened. And talk about a whole lot of nothing there. And you couldn't get into your Hotmail account. <laughs> um, the year before, two, you know, still 1999, Nostradamus. Anybody remember this? And the king of terror that would come from the sky. I mean, good grief. That's a Time Magazine front pay or cover there predicted that the world would end this summer. That was 1999. Okay, I realize we're getting to an age or a year where some of you are going to start dropping off. It's okay. Um, I jumped then to 1988. We talked about this last week, 88 reasons why the rapture is 1988 or the great sequel, why I was wrong and it'll be 1989. So you had that whole thing, you know. And then we talked about in the movie last week, 1982, they said the planets were going to align in Jupiter and there was going to be catastrophe from outer space. Um, okay, I think we lose everybody here because I'm jumping way back now. 1910. Anybody here? No. Okay. So nobody's 112 years old. Um, Halley's Comet was reappearing in 1910 
and it led to some predictions. And evidently, if you go back even a little bit further, 1881 was another year where there was this great panic in the world over the end of days. And then this one I thought was very fascinating, and I actually found a picture that was painted from this time. At 9 a.m. on May 19th, 1780, okay? So we're talking about the time of the American Revolution, right? The sky over New England was enveloped in darkness. The unnatural gloom is believed to have been caused by smoke from a forest fire or possibly heavy fog. But at the time, some feared the worst. And this is a quote. It said, people came out wringing their hands and howling. The day of judgment has come. And that was like recorded by a revolutionary war fifer. That they, they saw this and it's like, ah, oh, this is the end. Oh, here's one more. Nobody was here for this one. You'll be amazed. This one amazed me. 2800 BC, they have found an Assyrian clay tablet that bears this inscription. It says, our earth is degenerate in these later days. There are signs that the world is speedily coming to an end. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Amen. Amen. Still true. Every man wants to write a book and the end of the world is evidently approaching. And so, I mean, this is 2800 BC in a Syrian clay tablet. Isn't that fascinating? Why am I telling you all this? Because for almost 5,000 years, people have been doing this. People have been predicting the end of the world. And since it hasn't happened, these, I mean, some people will look at it and say, well, then it won't. <laughs> You guys are getting worked up for no reason. Why are you so concerned about this? Then it won't happen. But that's not the truth. And we know that. Because even if you're, if you're religious, if you're Christian, if you're following Jesus, and you do believe that there is an end at some time, even science will tell you that the, the world is coming to an end. I mean, it may be, they may think it's like 17 billion or 80 billion years or whatever, but they believe, secular atheists even believe that the world will end at some point. I mean, we've all seen The Walking Dead, right? I mean, we all know it's going to end that way. But it's a reminder that even though it's going to happen, we look at all these crazy events, even though it's going to happen, we don't have to spend any time, any effort, any energy, or any fear worrying about it. That's why we're talking about this. You see, and just a reminder, the Bible is full of apocalyptic literature. I mean, it's, it's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, it's there. And while we often try to take that liter, literature to predict future events, that's not what it's there for. That's not why it's in the Bible. Remember what we said last week, that apocalyptic literature doesn't mean foretelling the end of the world. It's an unveiling or an uncovering to allow, God is giving us this peek behind the curtain to be able to see things the way he sees things. I mean, sometimes we just need to see that, don't we? Sometimes we look at the world, we see how terribly, horribly screwed up it is, how broken it is, how sometimes how hopeless it is, and sometimes we just need to be able to peer behind the curtain to find, oh, that's right, this whole thing here is not out of control. There is an end. There is a purpose. There is a God that is moving things toward an end that we can trust. Talk about a reason to not have fear. When we get to peer behind that curtain, we get to be reminded that God is still in control.
And last week, as we were talking a lot about that left behind theology, poke some holes hopefully in that view a little bit. But I don't want to leave you in a state of deconstruction where it's just like, okay, well, maybe I did believe that, but then what do I believe? So today I want to do a couple different things. The first thing I want to do is I want to rebuild some things. So what are some other ways that we might look at this? How might we find peace and hope and joy even in how we think about things might end? But then also the second thing I want us to look at is, so what do we do while we wait? It hasn't happened yet. May not happen in my lifetime. I'm going to be here hopefully a little while longer. What do I do? Let's look at those two things. So first off, let me just prepare you. Class is in session. There's no other way to do this but to just break into the theology class and just lay it out for you. We rarely do this, but I do think it's important. So you need to know there are basically four views on how the world will end and how things are going to come to pass. Four views. That's really it. Amazing, isn't it? Like for 2,000 years, this is it. Four views. And all of them center around what's known as the millennial reign of Jesus. Anybody ever heard that before? Millennial meaning a thousand. And so it, it all stems from Revelation chapter 20. And so let's just take a look at these verses here. Verses one through four. Here's what the, the elder John, he has this vision and here's what he says. He says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Interesting, right? He must be. Why? I don't know. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And that is really the center beyond, but around a lot of the theology that is built. Because we're in a period now, and we're trying to understand since the time Jesus ascended, where are we, and what is going to be the events that get us to the end? Everything kind of stems from here. And remember, this is this vision of God show, showing John these things from, his, from God's perspective. There was persecution going on. The church is suffering. Christians are being martyred in, in horrific ways. And God is showing John that there is a battle raging that he couldn't see, and it even looks like God's kingdom might be being beaten in the world that it wasn't, that there was always going, that this is always going on, and that God is moving in ways greater than we can see. And that's what John is being shown. But before this thousand-year period, there was going to be this great tribulation period, this period of intense suffering. And that's where things start to begin to move in how we process this. After that period of tribulation, then there's a battle, Battle of Armageddon, you may have heard that, and then this thousand-year period that John was writing about here, that where evil is banished, Christ reigns for a thousand years. So last week we looked at one of the ways you can interpret some of this, and we, we called this left-behind theology. The correct term is known as dispensational premillennialism. Don't you love these words, dispensation? I never, ever in a million years thought I'd preach a message where I had these words on the screen. Never did. Just wait till you see the next slide. It's even better. This view takes a very literal reading of Revelation. I mean, which is a challenge for me personally, because as I hear about dragons and beasts and chains and keys, I go, are we really going to see dragons? 
are we really, or are they just metaphorical ways to see it? But the, this view is very literal in how it, it looks at the things that are to come and what John saw. So in this view of how things end, it is believed that the church and all who follow Jesus will be raptured. So let's move to the next slide right there. So you see the cross, that's where Jesus died on the cross. And then you see that next little period, and that's kind of where we're at now. And then you see a couple of arrows going up. So there's some debate on when are we going to be taken out. And the first one says we get taken out before any tragedy or difficulty starts. Some people say, oh, but you got to suffer through a little bit of it. But then halfway through or at the beginning of that period, we're raptured. That's what the word is used. It's called we're raptured. But in that moment, Jesus comes back, but he doesn't come back all the way. He just kind of comes and hovers over the world. And then we're sucked up to him, and then we're taken away. Chaos ensues on the world, and then uh, eventually Jesus returns. There's another big battle. And then after that seven-year tribulation, we come back, Satan's bound, and there's a literal 1,000-year period where Jesus sets up a kingdom on the earth. And then following that, there's the judgment where people are sent to their eternal state. And then after that, the new heaven and the new earth. The interesting thing about this view is there's three different resurrections in this view. There's a resurrection of dead believers at the rapture before the tribulation. There's the second resurrection at the end of the tribulation for the believers who had died during that time. And then the third is for unbelievers at the end of the millennium for a judgment. So there's kind of three different resurrections here. And this is view is, is, this view is built on kind of what we said last week, where you take Jesus' words in Matthew 24 and you see them still being unfulfilled. You still see that there are things left undone that need to be done in order for these things to come about. So prophecies that need to be fulfilled. However, as we talked last week, there's a challenge there because all those things that Jesus talked about were fulfilled in the first century and have been repeated many times over the last 2,000 years. And as I said last week, this view right here has really only been around 200 years. And that's more my struggle with anything. It's kind of this new theology, and it's kind of like, okay. But it is built on something that's been around for 2,000 years. I don't know if you knew this. And that gives us to the second view, which is called historic premillennialism. Okay? So this one has been around since like, you know, one, two, three hundred years after Christ. Um, and this view believes that there will be a tribulation period. So that tribulation is going to happen. The difference is, is there's no rapture. You just take the rapture out. Christians are going to go through that tribulation period. There's going to be suffering. And at the end of that tribulation period, Jesus is going to come back. And Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years. But there is a little bit of, of gray area here because it doesn't have to be a literal 1,000-year period. So they try to balance the symbolic and the literal pieces of Revelation, emphasizing both what the book meant to the first century believers but also how it might apply to us today. So this sees this interim period when Jesus returns, uh, or it sees an interim period from when Jesus returns and before the new creation happens. Does that make sense? So all this has to do with comings and goings of Jesus. So that's the second view. It's been around almost 2,000 years. It's been around a long time. A lot of good, solid believers have believed this and thought this for years. There's another one, though, and if it's not premillennial, guess what it is? Post. That's right. Post-millennial. And so what that means is that Jesus is going to return 
after the thousand year period. Now this view is very interesting to me. Go ahead and go to the next slide. So what this view actually believes is that, yeah, Jesus is going to come back at the end of the period, but there's not actually a a literal thousand-year period. It's basically Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God, and that has been coming into the world ever since Jesus was here. And it just kind of keeps being released and revealed to a place. You see that line in the middle? Basically what that represents is it says things were really bad, But as the kingdom of God continues to be revealed, things are just going to continue to get better and better and better until there's a time where it's just like, yes, Jesus comes back. It's great. Jesus can come back now. And so in this view, the Great Commission is very important, telling people about Jesus, seeing people come to follow him. And uh, because as we remember what we read last week in Matthew 24, there's that passage where Jesus said it was going to be after all the nations had heard the message of Jesus, that then he would come back. So this view, I will say, though, is one that used to be very popular, but about the early 1900s fell out of favor. You know why? Things like World War I and World War II. When you have this theology that says, oh, but the world is just going to continue to get better and better, and then you see things like the Holocaust, that has a tendency to punch holes in that belief. So this really fell out of favor with theologians at that time um, because most people do believe that there will be a period where things get worse, much worse, before they get better. And then there's one final view, and this one is called Ah, millennialism. Anybody know what ah stands for? Or what it, how, no, none. And it's a little deceiving because you would think, oh, that means no millennial. That's really not what it's talking about. Um, it actually doesn't deny the millennial period, but it actually says it's more metaphorical. And it actually looks at the period that we're living in today as being that millennial period. Does that make sense? There's kind of like an overlapping there. Here's the millennial, and here's where we live. The church age, which is what we're in right now, or is what they call it, is the millennial. And there's this period, there will be a period of persecution at the end of the church age, usually called the tribulation. And then Christ will return to bring in the eternal state of the new heaven and the new earth. And this view sees both the now and the not yet of the kingdom. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Jesus talked about the kingdom being now, but not yet. This view really encapsulates that really well. And it doesn't require multiple resurrections or returns of Jesus. Just one more to come. Jesus will return one more time, and that's it in this view. And everything will be done, and there's a new heaven and new earth. So I will tell you, as I shared last week, this wasn't like anything in seminary where I was like, please let me study the end of days. I'm like, let me get through this because it wasn't ever anything that I'm like really passionate about. So I'm very grateful for theologians. There was a book I got this week. It's called Evangelical Theology by Dr. Michael Bird. He is a Australian theologian and I appreciate him for helping me put this together this morning because these are very complex ideas. There's so much more to it. This is the 60,000 foot view right here. There's so much more you could dig into about the state of Israel and the covenant God had with Israel and what that means. And there's passages in Daniel, and you have to figure out how do you interpret those and bring those forward. Today's just the basics to give you kind of that overview. And I will tell you, after studying this personally 
and reading some of the additional stuff. I, post-millennialism, I think I have struggled with just like everybody else. The historic, or the, excuse me, the dispensational, premillennial, I really have a struggle with. But the other two, I'm like, yeah, I could see either of those being fine. I could go either way with those. But I tell you all this because I want you to remember this right here, secondary doctrine. It's a secondary belief. There's a reason when you go to the Ashworth website and you pull up our statement of faith, it doesn't say, and we believe in the you know, historic premillennial return of Jesus Christ. You know what it says? It says, we believe Jesus is coming again because that's the important part. And we do. We believe that Jesus is coming back and there's plenty of room for diverse opinions about how we get there. I mean, you tell me how you interpret chains and keys and trumpets and bowls and dragons and beasts and everything else. And I'll go, cool. And I'll tell you how I interpret it. And we'll move on, even if we disagree. Because the most important thing is Jesus is coming back. That's what we need to agree on. That's what we need to see. Not how, not when. I mean, we believe this not because we think it should happen. We believe it because Jesus believed it. And we believe it because those who walked with Jesus and knew him so well believed it. In fact, we said last week, I think most of the disciples and the apostles believed that it would happen in their lifetime. I think they lived fully expecting that to happen. Now, they weren't disappointed when it didn't, but I think that's just how they lived. They just thought this is how it's going to be. But why is this so important? Think about that for just a second. Why is this important? I was talking with Keegan, who works with uh, InterVarsity over at Drake, and she, she, was, she told me, she said, nobody I deal with at Drake thinks about this. Nobody that generation has any thought about Jesus coming back or the end of the world. Is that a problem? Is that a big deal? I think it matters. I don't think, I think, I don't think we have to go around with like sandwich boards like, no, you need to know the end is near. You know, we don't need to do that. But why is this significant? Why is it important? I think it's important because all of history is actually shaped by this idea. I mean, the fact that Jesus is coming back is not an afterthought of God. It's not something that he's like, well, the world went to hell, so I guess I'll have to come back. This has been the plan of God from the beginning. This has been his design and his desire. And all of human history has been about God redeeming and God reconciling the world to himself and about Jesus as the now and the not yet king. There's things still left undone. You only have to live about two minutes to realize that, that the world is not great. It's not perfect. There's still brokenness, and we need something to fix what's happened in the world. God bursting into our world and inviting us to be a part of what he's doing. That's why this is important. That book I was telling you earlier by Michael Bird, I thought he put it well because he said, he said, the last days began with Jesus's first days on earth. I thought, wow, that's a profound statement. And they did. He goes on to say this. He says, the study of end times or eschatology is not just about the final chapter of the book of history. No, eschatology is an invasive story about how God's promises to bring justice, reconciliation, and peace to earth have already invaded this age, even if unexpected in timing and means, so that the plan and purposes of God will ebb toward a dramatic final moment in the divine plan. This is what God is doing. 
This is part of what God has put out there since he created us, not an afterthought. And why is this important? Not just because of this, but because what we believe about what's to come shapes everything about how we live today. I was talking with somebody just this morning, and they were saying how it's the beginning of school, and most of the time kids come in hope-filled at the beginning of school, but they're not seeing that this year. There's very little hope in students at the beginning of school. This is significant. We need hope. We need hope. And the fact that Jesus is coming again is a place we can live that can give us hope. If we think this whole idea is make-believe, then who cares? Let's live it up, let's burn the sucker down, and let's move on. Because it doesn't matter. But if Jesus set in motion the kingdom of God while he was here, and he is returning one day, if there's a new heaven and a new earth in our future, it impacts how we interact with one another. It impacts how we interact with the people not in this room. It, interacts how, it impacts how we interact with God's creation. The world, our mentality, our mindset, our emotional state is really all tied up in what we think and believe about this. Which leads to that question I said we need to get to. So what do we do while we wait? What are we supposed to be doing? Now, let me reiterate some points from last week. Jesus is coming again. We don't know when, and it doesn't matter. He is coming back. We do want to be people of hope, not of fear. God is not done yet. There's a plan being laid, laid out, and we need to live ready. Those were the things I said at the end of the message last week. So the question is, how do we live ready? Well, I think when we go back to Jesus' words in that whole speech he gave about the end of days, we see some very important things that we need to take away. Matthew 24 is where we were. And if you look at verses 4 and then verses 23 and 26, look at what Jesus says. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah and will deceive many. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, even those following Jesus. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or he is here in the inner rooms, do not believe it. You know what Jesus is telling us right here? Be discerning. Be discerning. I think we've lost this in so many ways in our culture. We just bounce from information to information, from, from media source to social media source, and we're just like sponges, and we just eat it up, and we read it and we believe it, because God knows if it was on the internet, it must be true. And we, we've taken off the lenses that allow us to evaluate, and Jesus is telling you, we must be discerning. We need to be the people who stop and evaluate and go, hmm, really? And consider this, because there's going to be a lot of things. Jesus is saying there's going to be a ton of things coming at you that looks like truth. That's not truth. You know what the other word for not truth is? Lies. Lies. There's going to be a lot. And he even says there's going to be Christians. Did you catch this? That suck it up that grab onto it and go, but, but, but it's the truth. And Jesus is saying, stop it. Don't get sucked in. Be a discerning 
people. Stop. Use your brains. Use the Holy Spirit of God that you've been given to walk and and dwell within you, to empower you, to evaluate the garbage you're sucking into your life. We can't just be those sponges and just go after the latest conspiracy theory. So many modern day prophets claiming, you know, this person's the savior of the world. This politician is this. Wrong. We have to be very weary of this. And let's acknowledge how difficult this is. If anything highlighted just how difficult it is to be discerning, it was COVID-19. Who's telling the truth? God only knows at this point. Wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Get a shot. Don't get a shot. It's my right. It's my body. My choice. It was the hardest thing in my life to navigate. And the number of people I agitated and ran off from this church just because I was trying to be discerning was amazing. What is truth? It is difficult for us to know. But what helps us is to listen to and believe and follow the voice of the Holy Spirit of God. Doesn't mean we're perfect. It just means we have to stop. And we have to stop chasing after this and that. 1 John 4 1. Listen to what was written to the church back then. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That is as absolutely true today as it was 2,000 years ago when it was written. You know what he's saying? Examine it. Criticize it. Don't buy into everything you're told. Step outside the freaking echo chamber every once in a while and see what somebody else might be saying. Hebrews 5.14. Talking, I mean, this is a criticism of the church. He says, but you, you can't take solid food because solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. To distinguish Something we can be trained in. We can train ourselves in how to be discerning. We can do this, not just on our own, but by working together in community. Go back to the deconstruction series. I talked about truth and discernment, and I said discernment happens in contemplation and community. We need to spend time with God, and we need to spend time with one another, and we need to hash these things out with God, and we need to hash these things out with each other. That's how we grow in discernment. And do you know what the ultimate test is? The ultimate test is not whether or not we get power. The ultimate test is not whether we get control. The ultimate test is does it draw us closer to God and encourage us to look and live more like Jesus Christ? That is what matters. If we sacrifice integrity, if we sacrifice character in the process, it is not from God, period. This is what it means to be discerning. And you're going to lose friends in the process. You're going to agitate your family in the process. But there will be many that rise up and claim they are the Messiah and they claim this is truth. The world needs us desperately, men and women full of the Spirit of God, listening to the Spirit, speaking the words of truth from God himself, to not stir it up, to not keep things going, to not keep the othering and the bickering and the infighting and all these things, but to be the peacemakers in the world. We must be discerning.
What else does Jesus say? My time is up. Good grief. Too much to say. Ah, looking back at what Jesus said, here's some other things he said. Jesus said this. He said, you're going to be handed over and persecuted and put to death. I don't know who began preaching a gospel that said, no, Christianity's easy. No, it's not. Jesus said, pick up your stinking cross and follow him daily. That means sacrificing yourself and who you are and who you think you need to be to following him. It means there's going to be suffering and persecution. And what Jesus is saying is, while we wait, endure, persevere. Don't give up. Keep going. Even in Revelation chapter 13, John says a couple times, he says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. We can't just throw our hands up and walk away. We must endure. Things will be challenging. You will have to suffer, but don't give up. Paul says to the church in Galatia, he says, let us not become weary in doing good because at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We have to endure, and it's going to be exhausting. And again, what keeps us from giving up is contemplation, spending time with God, and being in community with one another. Because that leads us to the next thing, because being discerning and enduring suffering will suck the life out of you. So you know what else we need to do while we wait? We need to be encouraging, encouraging one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Look at what's written here. It says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Why? As, and all the more as you see what? The day approaching. The writer of Hebrews is saying, while you wait, you got to encourage one another. That's been a true concept for 2,000 years. You can't do it on your own. You're, you're not supposed to. You need other people speaking into your life, and other people need you speaking into them and being an encouragement. You know that stupid statement, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's a sarcastic statement. It was a statement of idiocy because it was something you could never do, and we claim it as if it's something we're supposed to do. It's not. We need other people. A couple more things we need to do while we wait. Jesus, if you read past Matthew 24, you go to Matthew 25, beautiful parable. Master leaves town. He gives his servant three bags of gold, one with 10, one with five, one with two. He leaves. He says, you know, I'm giving you this. Take care of this. He leaves. He comes back. The guy with 10 had multiplied it, got 10 more bags of gold. Master looks, says, well done, good and faithful servant. Guy with five bags of gold, Yep, I multiplied it, got five more. Well done, good and faithful servant. The guy with one was said, oh, master, I was so afraid. You're a hardworking man. I went out and I buried it in the dirt. And the master looks and he says, you could have at least taken it to the bank and gotten some interest. And you didn't do that. And he says, away from me, out of the master's presence. You know what that tells us? In this same speech that Jesus is giving about the end of days, he tells this parable because he's talking about the importance of stewardship or preserving what God has entrusted to us to preserve the world around us, to be good stewards of all that God has given us, our money, our time, our resources, our creation, our world, our relationships. We aren't to treat anything God made as disposable, not people, not creation, not anything. We have a responsibility to steward this well. The master is coming back and he's going to say, what have you done with what I gave you? I don't know about you, but I want to be the one that gets the pat on the back and the well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. I don't want the other one. The last thing that Jesus talks about while we're here is to just tell others about him. While we wait, 
you could, I put proclaim there. You could put evangelize there to tell people the good news of Jesus. It's not just about believing Jesus so you get heaven when you die. Jesus said, I have come to release the captives, to give sight to the blind, to give healing to those who need it. This is the reality that we as the people of God should be living in, not hoping for, but living in. The kingdom is now. People are healed. People are released. We need to be proclaiming that gospel of freedom to the world. And then he'll come back, and that'll be amazing. Jesus told his disciples after the resurrection, go make disciples. Why? Because Jesus has the words of life. He is the only thing that can help us make sense out of this messed up world. He's the only one that can help reveal to us the purpose of why we're here, what we're created for. And in a world that sees person after person looking for these things and stuff and careers and fame and relationships and sex and everywhere else, wouldn't it be nice if they heard that they can get off the hamster wheel and find in Jesus everything that they've been looking for? And remember, when we tell them, it's not to scare them to death, but to reveal to them a love like they have never experienced before. And as the church, we should be living this. We should be modeling this every day. As I read this week, somebody put it, they said, we should be a showroom for new creation. So the end is near. Maybe not in the way we think. We don't have to live in fear, but we should be people that live with hope. Jesus calls us to that, to peace and hope and joy, knowing that one day the world, the pain, the suffering that we see, the hatred, the vitriol, the fighting, the destroying, all that's going to be dealt with one day. And it gives us something to look forward to. And in the meantime, we patiently endure with a spirit of discernment, encouraging one another. If you're not in a relationship with other believers where you're finding encouragement, find me, find Amy, find Liz. We will help you find those relationships. You need those. Stop letting Sunday be your only experience with other people. You need other relationships. If it's nothing more than just a coffee once every other week, you need that. I want to release you and encourage you to find that. We preserve what's around. We're telling others why Jesus is worth following and giving your life to. The Apostle Peter in his first letter that we have in the New Testament. Eugene Peterson's message translation, listen to how he interprets this. He says, What a God we have, and how fortunate we are to have him, this Father and our Master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. Amen. And the future starts now. That worship set we had was amazing. Amy, I'm going to have to cut you off here at the end because I think we're going to bump too far. Sorry, I preached way too long. This is going to be a long one. Sorry, guy. Um, but I will tell you, I was going through some, a book with some guys recently, and it has some spiritual practices in it. And one of them was called breathing prayer. We've talked about that before. And uh, breath prayer. And it, it said, here's some examples of things you can do. Or it said you can make your own. And I started thinking about where I was personally. And I've been in a place of discouragement a couple months ago, and I just thought, okay, you know, uh, where am I? I was just kind of discouraged about church, you know, what's happening in the church world, how do we reach people, all this stuff. And just the phrase came to mind, and, and my breath prayer became, God of hope, I trust in you. And I put it on a card under my monitor in my office, and just as I would see it, I would just stop and I would just pray, God of hope, I trust in you. The end is near? Maybe. Maybe not. Doesn't matter. 
Because God of hope, I trust